Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. On this Palm Sunday, we're going to look at the traditional story of the triumphal entry of Jesus. This is uh, the time when he's entering the city of Jerusalem and the crowds are acclaiming him as king. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that's a good confession. That's a true statement. And everything seems like it's on track to be going the right way. But beneath the surface, there is something else at work. All through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has been setting us up. He's been setting up the reader for this conflict that is coming. And Jesus and the leaders of Israel do not have the same vision of the kingdom of God. And that's going to become very apparent over the next couple of days after this particular scene. This morning, what I'd like to do is, Matthew 21 is going to be kind of our launching point. We're going to walk through the text and just talk about what's there and make sure we understand it. And then I'm going to go to um, one particular kind of statement, a truth claim that I want to give you and several other supports for it, mostly from the Gospel of Matthew. And then at the end, kind of draw it together into a particular application for us to be thinking about today. But we'll start by just working our way through Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. So follow along with me, and I'll just kind of do it uh, little bit by little bit and comment on it. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, so for there, right there is our setting, so let's just pause and make sure we know what's going on here. This is the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion, the last week of his ministry leading up to the crucifixion. He has already at this point healed Lazarus, and he is now coming into the city of Jerusalem. If you were looking um, kind of from your direction, if you were looking at a map, maybe from the south looking north, you would see Jerusalem up on the mountain, And on the eastern edge of it, as you're looking at it, on the eastern edge is a valley. That's the Kidron Valley with the Kidron River running through the bottom of it. And then up the other side is the Mount of Olives. And kind of over the Mount of Olives and kind of back beyond that are several small villages, including Bethany, where Jesus healed Lazarus, and Bethphage. And so Jesus is coming from that direction up to the top of the Mount of Olives, and as he's coming to the top of the Mount of Olives and he looks across, he's going to see the city and particularly the temple. That's what's right directly in his view. Now this is, in terms of the timing of this, this is the Passover festival in Jerusalem. So this is a time when Jews from all over the place are coming to Jerusalem. The, The population of the city is very swollen during this time. This is also a time period where the Roman Empire is in charge, and so Rome sends extra soldiers because there's extra crowds, and so the tension is very high. The religious fervor is very high. The excitement is in the air. It's a time of anticipation as the the Jewish people are focused in on what God has said in the Old Testament and what they are to be looking forward to. And so all of that, there's kind of this extra just energy, excitement, anticipation, tension, danger even in the air as this scene unfolds. Now up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has been unfolding the idea that Jesus is the king. That's his theme. And Matthew tells his gospel, tells his story of of the good news of Jesus, very similar to Mark, but if you know 
the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew, you know that Matthew's a lot longer. The reason for that is Matthew seems to kind of take Mark as a working uh, kind of beginning place, and then he drops in five different teaching episodes along the way, extended teaching episodes that, that typically last for a couple of chapters. So, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount would be the first one in the Gospel of Matthew, that first kind of extended teaching episode. We're going to see another one, if you were to, to continue on in Matthew from this point, at Matthew 24 and 25, what we call the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus teaching on the Mount of Olives, and what he's teaching about is the coming judgment on the temple and on Israel. Okay, so we're only a few days away from that. That's what Matthew is leading us to. And so <clears throat> from here, Jesus is going to go on through Holy Week. He goes directly from the scene we're looking at today into the temple and pronounces judgment on the temple. Remember, that's picking up what we saw in Leviticus 14. Every stone is going to be torn down because this is a diseased place. It's corrupt. Okay, that's going to happen. And then on through there, there's kind of this increasing conflict through the week as Jesus has these encounters with the religious leaders and others. And, and it leads up to, then, the Last Supper with his disciples, his trial, and then his crucifixion. So that's kind of the setting of where we are. All right, picking it up then at the end of verse 1. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, this is a planned activity. Jesus is doing something on purpose. He's been walking everywhere he goes for three and a half years. He doesn't suddenly get just to the outskirts of Jerusalem and say, you know, I could really use a ride. That's not what's going on. This is on purpose. He's doing something intentional. What he's doing is he's acting like a prophet. He is the prophet like Moses, greater than Moses, and he's doing a prophetic, symbolic action. A lot of times the prophets would do something. Sometimes it was really kind of crazy stuff. And they would do it out in public, and the point was for people to look, look at it, walk by, see it going on, and go, what is going on? What is he doing? Why is he doing that? What does that mean? Those are prophetic, symbolic actions that have some kind of significance. That's what Jesus is doing when he sends for this donkey, okay? Pick it up in verse four. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is fulfilling what the prophet Zechariah said would happen. Zechariah in Zechariah chapter nine is basically saying, the coming Messiah, king, is going to come like Solomon did. If you went back to 1 Kings chapter 1, you would see that at the end of David's life, as David is on his deathbed, two of his sons are vying for the throne. And they both have factions that are following them, Solomon and Adonijah. 
And David wants Solomon to be king. David knows that Solomon is supposed to be the next king. So while Adonijah is throwing a big feast in Jerusalem, David has Solomon get on David's own mule and ride into the city of Jerusalem there on the eastern side of the city, and he rides to the Gihon Spring, which is right there in the wall of the city. And this action is designed to show that David, the father, the king, is saying, this is the son who is the legitimate next king. And so Zechariah is saying, when the true king comes, the Messiah king, he's going to come in a way like Solomon, and he's going to show his legitimacy by coming, riding a donkey, humble and gentle. Now, it also has a lot to do with the way that his kingdom is coming. It's not coming uh, in military might. He's coming gently and humbly and peacefully. Let me just show you what this says in Zechariah. This is Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when the Messiah King comes, he's going to come with righteousness and salvation, and he's going to arrive in humility and gentleness. And then the next verse, verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So when the Messiah King comes, his kingdom is going to extend over the whole world. He's going to rule the nations in peace. And so Jesus sees what he's about to do now, riding this donkey, as the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. He is the Messiah King, arriving to bring in his kingdom. The whole gospel of Matthew has all been about the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom is at hand. It's coming. His kingdom, though, is not of this world. It's different. All right, verse 6 in Matthew 21. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So the crowds are acclaiming him as the Messiah. They don't really understand what's going on because they have in their mind a geopolitical kingdom like the Roman Empire. And the disciples don't even understand what's going on. If you read the same story in the Gospel of John, what John says in John chapter 12 and verse 16 is, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, so after his death and resurrection, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the disciples in this moment don't understand what's going on, but after the fact, after the the death and resurrection of Jesus, he ascends into heaven, he tells them that he has all authority, now they go, oh, now I understand what was going on. 
when he came in as the king. And what the crowds are chanting here is from Psalm 118, which we read earlier in our service this morning. Again, this is the Hallel, Psalm 113 through 118, what the pilgrims would say as they are uh, walking up to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's themes of God's steadfast love and his deliverance and his salvation and his sacrifice even. Pick it up with me in verse 10 of Matthew 21. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The city is stirred up. That sounds a lot like what happened in Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus was born and the wise men came looking and asking, they came to the palace asking Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And what does Matthew tell us? Herod was troubled and all the city of Jerusalem with him. So even here now, as the king, Jesus, has again arrived on the scene, the city is stirred up again. And the question that they're asking is the question that I want us to have in our mind this morning. Who is this? Who is this? C.S. Lewis asked, lunatic, liar, or Lord? Those are really your only three options. Either Jesus is crazy saying the things that he said about himself, or he's a liar, he was intentionally deceptive, or he really is who he says he is. A lot of people like to say, well, he's just a great teacher. C.S. Lewis said he did not leave that option open to us. Nobody who said the kinds of things that he said could be considered a good teacher. He's either crazy or a liar, or he is who he says he is. But here the crowds are asking, who is this? Who you are acclaiming to be the Messiah, the King. And the truth claim that I want to throw out there this morning for us to think about is this. There is an antithesis between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. Antithesis is a word for saying contrast. They're opposites. It's just maybe a stronger word for it. There's an antithesis between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. They're different. They're different. And so I want to give you four ways that they're different. And every once in a while, my preacher training kicks in and I give you alliteration where all the words start with the same letter. And so you have that this morning. Four things. And the first one is the source of the kingdom. The source of the kingdom is heavenly, not worldly. Turn to John chapter 18. I'm going to have you follow along with me this morning in your Bible. We're going to bounce to a couple of different passages, most of them in Matthew, but this first one, I think, comes out really clearly in the Gospel of John, and so I want you to see it there. John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38. The source of the kingdom is heavenly, not worldly. John chapter 18. This scene is... Just a few days later, after the triumphal entry, this is when Jesus is on trial before Pilate. John 18, starting in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? 
Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Now let me just pause there for a minute. That little preposition of is important. It's a word that indicates origin, source. My kingdom is not of this world is saying the origin of my kingdom is not of this world, okay? If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, if my kingdom was sourced in this world, if the origin of my kingdom was this world, then it would be like all these other kingdoms and my followers would not be following me and, and, and announcing the arrival of the kingdom peacefully. They'd be doing it with swords. They'd be fighting. They'd be fighting back against the empire. But they're not doing that. Why? Because my kingdom is not of this world. It has a different origin. Verse 37, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So Jesus' kingdom doesn't originate from the world. For John, when he uses the word world, cosmos, it's the world system in opposition to God. Jesus' kingdom doesn't have a worldly nature or a worldly philosophy. Rather, those who listen to the voice of this king are those who are of the truth. Those whose life, their spiritual life, is sourced in God's truth, not the ways of the world. So the source of this kingdom is heavenly, not worldly. Second, the sons of the kingdom are those who are of spiritual faith, not physical descent. Turn to Matthew 8. Matthew 8. The natural way of referring to the sons of the kingdom, and even what it means in this passage when we see that phrase, is we're talking about those who are of Jewish descent. Those who are descended from Abraham are the sons of the kingdom. But Jesus has something different in mind. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Okay, so just to pause there, this is a Roman centurion. This is a Roman Empire official who has power and authority. And what he's saying is, Jesus, I understand authority. If I say for something to happen, it happens, because I have authority. And I recognize that you have authority, Jesus, and all I'm asking you to do is to say that my servant be healed and I know it'll happen. You don't even need to come. What's Jesus' response then? Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such 
faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So those who are of faith belong to the kingdom. Those who were in Israel, who were sons of the kingdom by physical descent, are going to be thrown out. They don't actually belong because they don't have faith. While there will be many who come from the east and the west and sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who had faith. So Jesus says the people who are in the kingdom, the people who really belong, the true sons of the kingdom, are those who have faith. It's what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So this kingdom, the sons of this kingdom, are those who are of spiritual faith, not physical descent. Next, the standard of the kingdom is God's righteous law, which is fulfilled in Christ. Turn back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, that's just like you know, dotting your I and crossing your T, not even the little tiny bit, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Christ fulfills the law in that he keeps it perfectly. He does not do away with the law. God's moral law still stands today. The way the law is applied changes. Sometimes, especially coming out of the Protestant Reformation, God's law was talked about in three different categories, and those three categories can really be helpful for us in getting our mind around what God means when he talks about his law. First of all, there's God's moral law. And the moral law is based on God's unchanging character. This would be, for instance, most of the Ten Commandments would fit into this category. Worship no other gods. Don't murder. Don't steal. Those things are based on God's unchanging character, and that moral law doesn't ever change. That moral law is still in effect today. There's also the ceremonial law. This would be the things like priests and sacrifices and festivals and all of those parts of the law were given specifically to the nation of Israel for the purpose of pointing them forward to Jesus. They explained what Jesus was coming to do and to accomplish. And now that Jesus has come and fulfilled the law, 
the ceremonial aspects of the law are no longer in effect. We don't need those to point us forward to Christ because Christ has already come. The third category of the law, and the one that sometimes causes the most confusion, is the civil law. And the civil law is given in the form of case law. Case law is when you have a particular example that's given, and the, the legal ruling that should happen in that case, and that serves then as an illustration of a deeper principle. So for example, biblical case law says, if your ox gores your neighbor's ox, and it's never done anything like this before, then what should happen is, the ox that was killed, the meat gets split between you and your neighbor, and the cost of replacing the ox gets split between you and your neighbor. Nobody is particularly at fault. This is just something that happened, and so you split the cost. But if your ox has done this before, if you know that your ox has a problem with violence, so to speak, and you didn't put a fence up and you didn't restrain it somehow, then you are at fault and you bear the full cost for replacing your neighbor's ox. That's case law. Now, what happens if your goat does something to your neighbor's goat and there's no Old Testament law about the goats? What do you do? Well, you take the case law about the oxes, oxen, and you take the principle and you apply it to the new situation. Because the underlying principle is based on God's unchanging moral law, his unchanging character, so it doesn't change, but the application might look different. So today, it might be the case then, for instance, if you had a tree in your yard that fell over and uh, crushed your neighbor's fence. Well, it depends on why the tree fell. Did the tree fall because it was old and rotten and you didn't do anything about it? If that's the case, then you would be responsible to pay for your neighbor's fence. But if this was like a lightning strike and it was a healthy tree and then it fell over, that's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. So you would split the cost. That would be like a modern application of that case law. So the civil law of the Old Testament is still in effect today in the sense that it's case law and it teaches us how to apply God's moral principles. Now we don't have to worry about our oxen typically because most of us don't have oxen. But the principle that's illustrated in the case still stands today. That's how God's righteous law functions today. So if Christ is king, then his law, God's law, is the law of the kingdom. And if you and I are part of God's kingdom, then his law is our law. That's how that functions. So the standard of this kingdom is different. It's God's righteous law. Fourth, the spread of the kingdom. This kingdom spreads differently than other kingdoms. It spreads by gospel power, not military might. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Remember that during this time, we're in the Roman Empire. How does the Roman Empire spread? How did it gain the lands that it gained? It overtook those lands from the Greek Empire. 
which came from another empire. And you can trace it on and on and on. And it's military conquest after military conquest. And Jesus is saying, here I am as the king. And the people are expecting that that means the Roman Empire is going to be repelled. But Jesus' kingdom is different. It doesn't spread through military power. It spreads through gospel power. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, this is where Matthew's gospel ends. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Disciple the nations, they become followers of Jesus. Baptize them, they submit to the lordship of Jesus. Teach them to observe my commands. Okay, so learn God's law and obey Jesus as Lord. This is in contrast to the Roman Empire. At the time that this is being written, Tiberius Caesar is the one who is in charge. And who did he claim to be? If people asked the question about Tiberius Caesar, who is this? His answer was on the coins that he minted for the empire. His father, Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar when Jesus was born, had been proclaimed by the Roman Senate divine. Caesar Augustus was a god. And Tiberius Caesar proclaimed himself to be the son of God. Do you see the contrast that is set up here? The Jews are living in an empire where the man in charge claims to be the Son of God. And Jesus comes along with his kingdom. And as the gospel goes out, you see, for instance, the disciples preaching and getting in trouble because the officials are saying they're proclaiming another king, namely Jesus. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. I want you to see a couple more passages on this. Acts chapter 1. This is now, while Jesus is still on earth, before, right before he ascends into heaven, and he's getting ready to send his disciples out. And so, for 40 days after his resurrection, he has been spending time with the disciples, and what Luke tells us is that he's been speaking to them, verse 3, about the kingdom of God. What did Jesus take his time to tell them about? He talked to them about the kingdom of God, because he's going to send them out as representatives of the kingdom of God. They're going to go spread the kingdom through the power of the gospel. So look at what happens then in verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit's going to come, empower you to spread the gospel of the kingdom, starting with Jerusalem, 
then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. This is concentric circles working out from where they are in Jerusalem out through the rest of the world. And we know from history that that's exactly what they did. Flip to the very end of the book of Acts. I just want to show you how this whole thing ends. Acts chapter 28. Okay, flip to the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. Here we have Paul in prison in Rome. He's under house arrest, so he's able to receive visitors. And there are a number of Jewish people who come to visit him because they're intrigued by what he's saying. But he's in Rome. He's in the heart of the Roman Empire, imprisoned, and still spreading the good news of the kingdom. So in Acts chapter 28, look at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So he says, the kingdom that the law and the prophets were pointing to, that's what I'm proclaiming. And the king that the law and the prophets were proclaiming, that's Jesus. He's proclaiming the kingdom and the king. Jump down to verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So by the end of the book of Acts, if you follow the story of Acts, the gospel of the kingdom has gone throughout the whole world, just as Jesus said. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and by the end of the book of Acts, to the ends of the earth, there in the heart of the Roman Empire itself. Now, you can see why there is a conflict when the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus is proclaimed. They're proclaiming another king, namely Jesus. And the conflict is the question of Christ versus Caesar. We don't have a Caesar today, but the problem is a perennial one in whatever geopolitical situation you find yourself. It's this tension of the question of Matthew 21, who is this? How you answer that question determines how you live. And in a culture where today, our institutions, particularly our government, are increasingly antagonistic to Jesus, we need to get our thinking right on this. Jesus' claim to lordship is universal. All authority. Every person, every institution, every aspect of life, all authority. Man's sinful tendency in this world is what? To be like God. That's what we want. What was Satan's fall? He wanted to be like God. What did he do then with that, that fault of his own? He turned it into the strategy for how he would attack God's people. He came to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. And in every age, that's the human temptation. And so human rulers, kings, presidents, prime ministers, premiers, seek to be like God 
with an ever-increasing grab for power and the human government as a whole, not even just the individuals, but the whole system seeks to be like God and to grab power. But God's design for government is different. And so what I want to finish with this morning is this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. I want to look at the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13. This is God's design for human government. And I want you to listen for what God says about human government. They are to be his servants. And if you keep in mind all that we've talked about this morning about Jesus' kingdom and the extent of his rule, then what does it mean when God says that human government should be God's ministers? It means they should come under the lordship of Christ. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Oftentimes, a very surface reading of Romans 13 is brought up with the idea suggested that Christians should just obey the governing authorities no matter what. But there's a couple of things you need to keep in mind. Primarily, the man who wrote this, Paul, ran away from governing authorities who wanted to arrest him and publicly shamed government authorities when they overstepped their authority. What you have here in Romans 13 is a presentation of the ideal human government. This is what human government should be. So for the Christian, submission to the state should be our default factory setting. We should be submissive to the governing authorities. We even obey ungodly rulers. Why? For conscience sake, because they represent God if they're doing what's right. What this means for the state then is that the rulers are God's ministers. The word literally is deacons. They are God's servants, God's ministers. So their authority and their commission comes from God. Because think about it, Jesus' kingdom is over all the earth. He has all authority over everything. That includes human governments. So their authority and their commission comes from God. So in nations that are more Christian in their orientation, oftentimes the oath of office even specifically reflects that. 
Take a look at some of the founding documents, for instance, of Canada or England. It's very explicit. In our own country, presidents typically, when they take the oath of office, they have their hand on the Bible. Now, today, it tends to be a closed Bible, but for a long time, the tradition was that that Bible was open to the passage in Deuteronomy that explained God's law for the kings and the king's responsibility to uphold God's law. Presidents were self-consciously understanding that their role was in submission to God to, pro to promote God's law because they were his servants, his ministers. And their job description comes from him. Punish evil and reward good. They're supposed to be a terror to evildoers. They're supposed to execute justice. How do you know what justice is? God's law. It doesn't say execute justice according to whatever definition you choose. No, it's execute justice. And God is the one who defines justice. So a ruler who is doing what God has called him to do will be executing the justice that God has given in his law. What you need to see is this. The state is, by definition, placed on a theological basis. Do you see that? Every human government in every nation on the earth is, in God's eyes, placed on a theological basis. They have a responsibility to God, to justice as God defines it, to right and wrong as God defines it. And so the state is, like man, subject to God's law and therefore also subject to God's judgment. So when the state begins to be a terror to good works, the Christian duty is to resist. When the state is doing what it's supposed to and is promoting justice, the Christian duty is obedience to the state. And our founding documents in the United States even explicitly lay that out. The state, as a minister of God, must recognize and obey the lordship of Christ. Otherwise, the state is a counterfeit kingdom. So what does that mean for us? The solution here is gospel obedience to Jesus as Lord. When the state's in rebellion against Jesus, the Christian duty is to resist. But when the state is functioning as God's servant, there's a Christian duty to obey. See, all of this is heading. You have to understand where it's going. Revelation 11.15 says this. Listen carefully. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world are to be being brought into conformity with the kingdom of Christ. That will be accomplished one day. Daniel 7, verse 27, says it this way. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So all other kings will obey Christ. So patriotism is good, but our ultimate allegiance must be to Jesus. 
Which brings us back to the question of Matthew 21. Who is this? Who is this who's being proclaimed king? Are there any limits to his lordship? Will you, will you follow him as lord up to a point, or will you follow him as lord completely? There is an antithesis between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. And our allegiance must be to Jesus above all others. And that's an appropriate thing for us to remember on Palm Sunday as we consider the triumphal entry. Jesus' arrival as king. His kingdom is not of this world. It's very different. It doesn't, we don't take up arms to fight for God's kingdom. We take up this sword. It's the gospel. And the power of this kingdom is spiritual power, not military power. Is your allegiance, is your heart and your mind fully and completely given over to this king? Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we consider these words that we've seen this morning from Matthew 21, and particularly the question of who is this, that we would answer that in the way that you've designed, that we would say Jesus is Lord completely, totally. All authority has been given to him. And that authority extends to every aspect of our lives. May we not hold back part of our heart, part of our mind, part of our lives that is not in submission to Jesus, but may we completely live in obedience to him. This king who has given himself for us. This king who comes humbly and gently with salvation. May we honor him as king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.